Ready for another Bible Geek? I know I am. And I'm Robert M. Price, uh, your friendly neighborhood Bible Geek. Uh, what say we take a look at some questions? Uh, by the way, some people have wondered uh, just why the heck uh, their questions have not been answered when, according to internal references, some of the questions I have done recently refer back to uh, questions sent me much later. It has to do with a weird glitch uh, that, uh, being an ignoramus, I, I'd have no idea how to deal with whereby I can only really add new questions at the top. I know this is absurd, it must be very simple, but so am I. So, uh, however, what I'm going to do now is to start from the bottom and go up. I don't know why I didn't think of that before. Uh, this one is from John S. in Toronto. Uh, well, these two, should I? Well, three, should I say? Yeah, okay, here we go. I'm writing about the argument from embarrassment used by apologists as it is applied to the discovery of Jesus' empty tomb by women. Um, uh, let's see, for me, the reason or one of them seems pretty straightforward. Now, I'm obviously not as knowledgeable as you, but still, I haven't heard it anywhere, so what the heck here it is. Since Christians had to address the immediate objection raised by your average incredulous listener, namely, how do we know that you guys didn't simply steal the body yourselves? Then the Christians needed the first witnesses to the empty tomb to be people who weren't strong enough to roll away the stone. Uh, that is, women, one to three of them, uh, ignoring the unclear gospel of Luke, were assumed to lack the physical strength for that feat, uh, as the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark protest too much. Now, who will roll away the who will roll away the stone for us? Um, that is, uh, of course, since someone could claim that three women were strong enough, then later in the Gospel of John, the number was cut down to one woman, Caitlyn Jenner, notwithstanding. Uh, thus, the Hulk say. Puny women were needed as physically weak witnesses, a role that no man could play, since then your friendly neighborhood skeptic man would claim that a male witness could have rolled away the stone by himself, Chaz Bono notwithstanding. Oh, and a disabled man won't fly, uh... Well, either, since if he knew the greatest healer ever, why is he still in the Special Olympics? Besides, cripples are not to be believed, as according to most Bond films, they are evil to the bone. Um, of course, that doesn't mean you got to be evil to be crippled. It just means they like to portray evil folks as crippled, I guess, to, you know, symbolize their moral... Impairment. I don't know what the heck. Furthermore, we cannot have a kid as a witness since a kid's testimony might not have been believed as kids tend to make stories up. Also, why would a kid visit Jesus' tomb? Well, of course, one of them was supposed to be in there, right? The Neoniscos, the young man. That's another point. You need witnesses who had a reason to be there, but they cannot all be too close to Jesus or his disciples, lest uh, he or she be accused of giving false testimony. 
Another point is that a good story does not assign a pivotal role to totally new characters, especially near the end, as bad murder mystery writers do in order to achieve an unpredictable solution. The discoverers of the empty tomb, or one of them, must be already known to us. Interesting. Given that, and given the desire for a female witness not blood-related to Jesus' inner circles, but who's still close to him, then the only candidates would be those women he cured and who followed him. Enter Magdalene, or Joanna, or Salome to a lesser degree. So, one to three women. One of them uh, is Magdalene, it is. Actually, more eyewitness accounts were added as those fall-bringing-kitchen-belonging, Oprah-loving, hen-pecking, balls-and-chains women called someone who doesn't have a period, thus, <laughs> thus not susceptible to uh, mood swings to aid... <laughs> to aid them and serve as a reliable witness. Then, for good measure, a few more post-mortem encounters with the disciples were interpolated to remove all doubt. What do you think? Well, actually, um, though you you are not being like an old-time rationalist. You're admitting that what we're dealing with is fiction and asking why the fiction was written this way. I mean, you, you sort of seem to be leaning toward old-time rationalism in the beginning. That is the idea that, uh, that um, all of this was written pretty close to the uh, dawn of Christianity, uh, perhaps within the life uh, with, within the lifetime of uh, the disciples and all that. But uh, like you're saying, very early Christians fabricated some of this stuff. And why would they have done it the way they did? Um, and the embarrassment criterion, as you're implying, I think, is that um, they, they always say, if the story was made up, uh, no one would have uh, populated the fiction with women because women were not thought to be reliable witnesses. Of course, not that the apologists think that right. None of them say that rightly, uh, that they wouldn't trust the testimony of women. But that was the bias of the time, apparently. So if you were going to make up witnesses to the empty tomb, you, you certainly wouldn't uh, make up women because people would say what uh, Kelsus did say, uh, that, look, uh, you know, these women, they're hysterical. You, you can't trust uh, them. I mean, even, you know, especially Mary Magdalene, who, who was a multiple demoniac, according to Christians themselves. I mean, <laughs> you know, you're going to believe anything this crazy bro says, well, uh, it turns out that that is not really the case, that um, women, uh, according to, you know, the earliest Jewish uh, writings about this and the Mishnah we have, it indicates women's word was taken very seriously in court in matters that were their particular domain, and as the story itself makes clear, these women came to the tomb to help properly anoint and bury the body which had just been quickly stashed there. They were now going to do the labor that they couldn't do on the Sabbath. Uh, and uh, women were the big mourners and so on, just like in the Gospel of Luke when they're on the Via Dolorosa and Jesus says, don't cry for me, you daughters of Jerusalem. Um, and uh, these are their... Uh, 
uh, specialties. This is their domain. And so women's testimony was received in such cases. Uh, so that uh, that's a simpler way to get at it. It, it wouldn't have, in, a, in fact, they might be considered the perfect witnesses of the empty tomb because who else would be there? So I think there's an easier solution to this, though I do think you're correct in the f seeing the fictive nature of this. Also, it seems very clear to me that, uh, which doesn't prove anything, I realize, that the idea of these holy women devoted to the slain Savior uh, were uh, and, and seeking the body and anointing it are, are just part and parcel of the dying and rising God mytheme. After the death of Osiris, uh, Isis and Nephthys seek after the body and anoint it and raise it from the dead. Uh, after uh, Attis kills himself, uh, Sibeli goes to find the body and raises him from the dead. When Baal is killed in his uh, fight against the death monster Moat, uh, his consort Anat goes to the netherworld and, and finds him and brings him back to life. Ishtar does the same with Tammuz, and uh, we're even told by Plutarch that the women search for the body of the slain Osiris was uh, played out as a regular ritual. Uh, so, you know, I, it seems to me that's really why the women are in there. It's not for apologetic purposes. It's just that uh, Mark uh, got a hold of uh, a text for the ritual mourning of Jesus, just like these other dying and rising gods had. Uh, so I, I think that it's pretty easy to explain that with, without going into the creative uh, detail of your your theory which uh, you know I, I commend you for it is fascinating uh, question two from John even the Catholic Church accepts that most seemingly possessed people likely suffer from some mental illness furthermore many Christians believe Mary Magdalene to have been a harlot yet many Christians do expect people to accept her sole testimony about the stone taken away from the tomb um, as in the Gospel of John uh, they take it as at face value and become a Christian. This is hardly a reasonable course of action, despite what William Lane Craig might claim. Even if we limit ourselves to the synoptics, the women around Jesus are presented as Magdalene types and or true believers. Again, not much of an improvement, but there's more. I remember hearing a rabbi saying that there's no doubt that the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai was a real event since there were 600,000 witnesses present. Of course, the thing is, you don't have 600,000 witnesses. You have a story about 600,000 witnesses. I can tell a story about 50 million people seeing me turning tap water into expensive spring water. Sorry, what I have is a story about 50 million witnesses, not 50 million witnesses. Uh, thankfully, or the government would have shut down my bottled water factory a long time ago. Well, doesn't that apply to the New Testament? We don't have witnesses to the resurrection. We have contradictory stories about 
likely unreliable witnesses to the resurrection. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It really kind of goes down to the great Jesus and Mo cartoon I'm always quoting because it is so, uh, so insightful uh, to go from the features of the story to, uh, the, to, to go from that to assume that that's historical, and then to say, well, the outcome must be historical too. How can you do that? I mean, it's like saying there must be an Emerald City of Oz, since where the heck else does the yellow brick road lead? (laughs) I get news for you, pal, it's part of the same story. And uh, you can't just assume a narrative is factually true. Uh, especially if you've got outrageous, miraculous features to it. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's just amazing. It, it just shows you that uh, apologists are still taking, they're just arguing in a circle. I mean, if we were willing to accept that much of the gospel uh, Easter stories as factual, well, uh, yeah, I guess we would go to the punchline too, but that's the whole pointed issue. Uh, last question. You always talk about people using the Bible as a ventriloquist dummy. Uh, the Bible's against abortion, right, Bible? That's right, Mom. Um, uh, wouldn't you say that some liberal judges do that with the U.S. Constitution? Uh, yeah, I sure do think so. And... Uh, the the better i think what the supreme court is supposed to do is what the rabbis did to extrapolate when something comes up that is not explicit in the constitution but to read it in such a way as to start making new laws that are being read into it that's not kosher in in my opinion uh but anyway okay yeah well good stuff Thank you, John. Notice I didn't do my insultingly bad Canadian accent. Hey, this one is from Frank Frost. Uh, let's see. Why do you think Luke has two different time frames for Jesus' life after the resurrection? Luke shows one week while Acts says 40 days. In old translations, is this... Uh, Okay, I think we've got a couple of different questions here. Yeah, uh, this uh, there's a couple of answers to this. One of them is that a couple of possibilities. One is that it's really narrative, not history, because if the same author wrote both Luke and Acts, and that's more complicated than scholars tend to think. Uh, I think they're ignoring some important questions that... Uh, uh, C.C. Torrey and others have raised about the source criticism of uh, Luke and Acts. But if you assume that it was the same character, that the same author that wrote these two books, then you would darn near have to say the, the Gospel of Luke is just rounded off to bring it to a satisfactory narrative conclusion. He rises from the dead, he appears to people, he gives them the grand send-off, and then goes to heaven, where he says, just wait, uh, you'll be receiving the promise of the Father soon. Well, he knows he's going to write a second one, a second volume. 
And in that one, he's uh, trying to make a different point. He wants you to understand that Jesus said all kinds of new stuff to the disciples over a 40-day period, so he had to be around at least that long. And doesn't say what he told them, and that's no accident, because the point is to write a blank check for the bishops of Luke's day. Uh, and, oh yeah, this this is what uh, what uh, Jesus told the disciples. It's the same sort of thing as in the Gospel of John, where Jesus says, uh, guys, uh, I've got plenty more to, to say to you, but let's face it, you're just not prepared for it now. So I'm going to send the Spirit of Truth to take from my teaching, my truth, take from mine and and declare it unto you, uh, and to bring back to your memory stuff you don't even remember that I said. <laughs> uh, that's a way of saying, uh, you know, I, I don't remember Jesus ever saying this. Oh, well, yeah, neither did we at first, but then uh, it, we snapped out of it thanks to the spirit of truth and so on. Uh, so uh, to accommodate a whole bunch of this teaching— that they could ascribe to the risen Jesus, they have Jesus hang around for longer. I mean, he may have had that idea in mind at the end of the Gospel of Luke, but he wanted to have a a, a good narrative uh, ending. Uh, and if this is the case, this author certainly wasn't concerned about the facts, right? I mean, he was, <laughs> there's a big question to what degree did the gospel writers even intend to be taken as writing fact? Uh, hard to say. I mean, there's such a thing as writing scripture, writing a powerful and edifying story, just like a guy telling a parable. So it, it, that would make sense. Like, And, and it's similar to the, uh, the three accounts accounts in uh, acts of Paul's conversion. They contradict one another. Was the author such a stupid dolt that he didn't realize that? Gee, you know, I forgot that. I'm too late now, like my frequently seeing proofreading errors I made when it's too late and the book's out. But probably not. Probably he just wanted to vary the story because he had reasons for telling the basic story three times, but he didn't just want to bore the reader. He wanted to give it some variety. Well, that might be what he did with the Ascension, and it's two different times. But there may be yet a simpler solution. Well, I guess it's not that simple, but it it solves it in a different, different way. Some early manuscripts of the Gospel of Luke do not have the ascension, literally speaking. Some of them don't have he departed from them and was carried up to heaven. Some just say he departed, which would be uh, consonant with his remaining on earth for 40 years. He just wasn't present with them all the time, nonstop. And uh, so, it may be that there is no contradiction uh, until some scribe decided to round the story off with the ascension. Uh, it it does seem a little bit odd that he would go somewhere else uh, if he was alive again and was hanging around with the with the eleven as as he used to, but that's possible. And yet it's it's also possible, as maddening as all this is that uh, it did originally say in the gospel that he departed from them and was taken up to heaven, 
And some scribe who noticed the problem between Luke and Acts decided to chop the and was carried up to heaven in order to harmonize the two. There's no way to know. <laughs> what a pain in the rear. Uh, I mean, that's a mild frustration for a critical New Testament scholar. There's not the urgency to iron out contradictions. You can rest um, content with uh, things you can't solve. Yeah, well, that's it. I guess until somebody comes up with something, we'll just have to leave that one open. Uh, there's a kind of uh, an anxiety uh, of faith that, oh, well, it's the word of God. It's got to be clear. So whatever I think it means, my best guess from now on, I'm assuming that is what it means. Oh, brother, you, you can't really do that. Yeah, okay, uh, more. Um, uh, he, uh, Frank says, uh, in old translations of Isaiah 45, 7, we have Yahweh virtually admitting to creating evil. In the original Hebrew, evil is, uh, some Hebrew letters I don't know, uh, pronounced like Ray? I don't know either. Uh, everywhere else in the Old Testament, the same word is translated as evil or bad, yet newer translations appear to be obfuscating the meaning of this verse by translating it as calamity instead of evil. I, and and that, that's not unreasonable. I mean, is, is he, in the context, is he talking about... Uh, abstract good and evil? Or doesn't he mean all events come from me, uh, the ones that you would consider fortunate and the ones you uh, wish wouldn't happen? I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, but anyway, um, I see something similar in the uh, parable of the wicked servant. Doulos appears to mean slave or bond slave, but new translations render it as servant, uh, the parable itself seems to suggest it would be acceptable to sell an entire family into slavery for a debt. Yeah, I don't think uh, there is any way to be sure there, but uh, I believe a number of modern translations do have slave uh, for the reasons you mentioned, that there, uh, that uh, since this was pretty common, to, to, to have indentured servitude and uh, and to enslave people to solve a debt problem, it probably does mean um, a slave, often a household slave. This doesn't mean that you uh, were living like an animal. I mean, there always throughout history, there's been all sorts of different ranks of slaves. Some slaves in in the Roman Empire held public office. Uh, some were high-ranking um, uh, administrators of an estate. Uh, some were treated like family, but then there were plenty of them who were treated awful too, right? So the word itself doesn't really tell you a whole lot about about that, but legally, yeah, they were apparently under irrevocable contract and uh, were the uh, the uh, property of the master, uh, or at least were under an unbreakable contract. So it could be either way, but I, I tend to translate it uh, slave. Am I reading my own admitted prejudices into these passages, or is there really an attempt to quietly change uncomfortable Bible verses to be more palatable to modern sensibilities? 
Uh, I do think that uh, that's the message, uh, the motive, but I don't think that they're really cheating. Now, there there are places where you got cheating translations, like when Jesus says uh, the mustard seed is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Uh, and uh, and then the parallel, it just says the smallest of all seeds, and that version gets uh, rendered uh, the smallest of all your seeds. Of course, I'm the all-knowing son of God, and I know orchid seeds and others are smaller, but you're not really familiar with those, so I'll just say the smallest of all your seeds. Well, it is possible to omit a possessive pronoun. There are cases where that that's done, and you can kind of tell. But here, that uh, you know, the, the the smallest of all the seeds, uh, and I mean, there's no reason to to add your in unless you are assuming he's the omniscient son of God and all that. And they're just trying to get off the hook. Uh, there's uh, there there are some places where you've got that kind of fudging. But uh, these are are not. Uh, we don't want to commit the genetic fallacy. They uh, the translators do want to sell some Bibles, right? They don't want their new version bad mouthed and burnt, which has happened to some translations of the Bible. But that really doesn't matter. I think their their translation choices are quite legitimate there. Um, let's see. Ken Bradley, a couple of questions from him. He says, in Mark 16, 7, the mysterious man in white, Colonel Sanders, tells the women at the tomb to go and tell his disciples and Peter, as I'm finding with Mark, everything is done for a purpose. Why do you suppose Mark has the man in white tell the women in this way? And would it have anything to do with 1 Corinthians 15, 5? And then he appeared to Cephas and the Twelve. Uh, it might indeed. You, you have to to suspect that. And and is the point there to highlight Peter as the leader of the group, to exalt him over the others? In both cases, I would think it is, which means these are the products of, of sectarian conflicts over who's going to be the leader. Um, it doesn't seem to be saying Peter or Cephas and the other 12 guys. Uh, they, it, I don't think we would want to press it that far to say that the, the first guy mentioned is not supposed to be one of the 12. It's just like he's the prince of apostles. You got the same thing in the book of Acts, right, where uh, there's a list of the apostles and John shows up silently as a kind of shadow for Peter. But it's always Peter uh, until we get to Paul. And then you have this strategic balancing of Peter and Paul. But of the 12, Pete is the, the one. And, of course, this raises the question of whether Cephas and Peter were even supposed to be the same guy. Uh, boy. But I, I suspect you're right. It is a highlighting of, of Peter because uh, he's the only one that uh, really mattered. I, I've talked about this a bit in um, uh, The Incredible Shrinking Son of Man, how Peter's really the only one that has any role. And I compare that to the great pulp superhero Doc Savage, a series of books all adolescent boys should read. 
great adventure stories uh, about a character who just maximizes all of his human potential. Really great stuff. Um, I'd also suggest all these kids read the uh, Mars books of Edgar Rice Burroughs and the Conan books of uh, Robert E. Howard, though uh, those are pretty bloody and some, uh, you know, skirt-clutching uh, Panty waists uh, are afraid of their little flowers uh, reading stuff like that. I'm not. Um, oh, but anyway, uh, even though there's 12, Peter's always the spokesman, and uh, you see the trajectory go on into medieval legends of the travels of Jesus. And who's with him? Not the 12, just Pete. Uh, the others just fall away. I, I was watching uh, the... Uh, finale of The Sopranos. As I've mentioned, my wife and I watch the whole series every summer. What a great, great show. Well, one by one, Tony's associates get whacked. Uh, and uh, Christopher, um, uh, Gigi, uh, Ralphie, Richie April, uh, etc., etc. Uh, Sill is left uh, unconscious in the hospital, uh, and uh, Bobby Baclieri is is shot, uh, and, and so on. And at the end, the only one left with Tony of the major characters is Pauly. Uh, and it's like he was really the Peter to uh, Tony's Jesus. Ultimately, you don't really need the others. They're all portraying uh, the same actantial role. And so when you just have one left, that's enough. Okay. Um, hum, hum, hum. Uh, let's see. Is this... Is there another one from Ken? I thought there was. I guess not. Okay. Um, Lachlan, the fearless vampire hunter, says, um, I've been using Blue Letter Bible or Bible Hub. What's all the hubbub, bub? And uh, using interlinear to see what words are important. The problem is that works great for the New Testament and the Old Testament as separate entities, but Richard Carrier had convinced me that Margaret Barker is right. The Septuagint is the original Christian Old Testament, and the Masoretic text is only introduced after Jesus was fully historicized. Uh, do you mean... Um, the, this late version of the Hebrew text or the Hebrew Bible period, because uh, Niels Peter Lemke has argued that the Old Testament is very likely all from the Hellenistic period and that uh, the Greek and Hebrew versions were produced at the same time for different publics, a view I'm kind of leaning toward. Uh, let's see. Uh, but then Lachlan says, can you recommend an online resource where I would be able to search the Septuagint for correspondences? I am not sure, but I think our old, old pal John Felix has uh, some interesting, astonishing, uh, resources like this. Uh, the, uh, the concordance to the Septuagint and all kinds of stuff. I cannot tell you exactly where you would find that. You you might uh, be able to look up 
uh, his name on uh, Wikipedia or something, and or or Google and see if it's under his name. It's John F. Felix, and uh, if I remember, I'll ask him for uh, some more particulars. But uh, I know of no one who has done anything like the amazing work John has. Okay, uh, this from uh, Robert Jace. Uh, good day, fellow blasphemer. I was reading an entry on Richard Carrier's blog dated March 20th, 1917, sorry, on looking for evidence in the epistles for a historical Jesus when I came across this interpretation that in the Bible, when Jesus is tempted by Satan, that the latter literally offers him everything, power, the universe, free refills, everything that would make Jesus equal to Yahweh. Now, if you accept the Trinity, then Jesus is Yahweh already. He just looks more human. So how does one part of God become equal to another part of God? I know that's dogma that evolved later as it conflicts with Trinitarianism, but it makes no sense as the Bible reads. Clearly, early Christians, even as late as the second century, did not take Jesus to be the same as Yahweh, and I've no idea where the Holy Spirit, who functions an awful lot like Nyarlathotep, uh, fits into the mix. Well, I don't think anything like the Trinity is in the minds of these evangelists. Uh, as Wainwright in his great book, The Trinity in the New Testament, points out, the Trinity isn't exactly in the New Testament, but the question is raised in the Gospel of John. There are statements there that are perfect examples of what Paul Tillich says, that that the Bible repeatedly raises, implicitly raises ontological questions, philosophical questions that it leaves the reader to answer. And a lot of subsequent Christian theologizing was a process of trying to put the pieces together and explore their implications. And uh, so John comes the closest to anything like the Trinity. But uh, of course, uh, John doesn't have the temptations either. Uh, I think that you can sort of, uh, that Trinitarians can nonetheless make sense of the temptations of the devil in this manner. Jesus was genuinely human as well as genuinely divine. And uh, the human side, uh, I mean, he may have been above temptation. I think that's kind of implied. So he may not have had any struggle with it, right? Uh, it must not have been seriously on the verge. Well, it sounds pretty good. I wonder if I should do it. Uh, I, I don't get the impression that that the Gospels imply that. Uh, but uh, the idea is, in fact, the point is uh, the, the testing of Jesus in the wilderness. If he is the son of God, he won't give in to these temptations. That was the point of Satan, right? To, uh, to uh, try the hearts of the ostensible servants of God. And Jesus passes with flying colors because he is the son of God. So really, there's not that much of a problem. Had he said, you know, that, that sounds pretty good. I think I want to do it. Uh, then we would have to conclude, nope, another false messiah. 
so the uh, so uh, perfect man or whatever you want to call it uh, he uh, you, you can perfect man because he is also God as I think the theology implies that still I mean let's test that out does he measure up to that and bingo he does hmm kid so that's not too blasphemous Robert okay uh Danila Oder uh, uh let's see as in the German or Oder O D E R uh let's see uh, see now here's wisdom she says first of all today i became a patreon patron i couldn't in good conscience keep listening to each and every bible geek not to mention watching your online debates without contributing do i mention this to shame my fellow listeners into contributing to well maybe a little at least those regular listeners with a few extra bucks here ends my unsolicited commercial uh, that was a good one, though. Uh, my question today is this, and I apologize that it is a little lengthy. In Matthew eleven twelve, Jesus is addressing a crowd of Galileans about John the Baptist, and he says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, etc. This reads to me as if the days of John the Baptist were some long-gone time, but John is still alive and in prison. Jesus just spoke with John's disciples a few verses before, sending them off with a message for John, Matthew 11, 2-6. Uh, even if the days of John the Baptist were intended to refer to his active ministry, that doesn't seem to work for the tone of the phrase. You, you got a sharp eye there, uh, Daniela, because I, I've, that is the apologetic view, and it's not completely unreasonable that John's ministry is over. We know he's in jail, um, but uh, it, it does sound like he's measuring a big gap, right? Uh, so I'm with you. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, in Matthew 3, John baptizes Jesus. Apparently, immediately thereafter, in chapter 4, Jesus spends 40 days in the wilderness being tempted by the devil. The latter half of Matthew 4 implies some unstated passage of time, but it certainly doesn't seem like very much time, a few months, a year. Then we've got a few chapters dedicated to a single sermon on the Mount. Then we have a few more chapters of indeterminate, uh, but uh, not apparently lengthy ministry. A few more months? A year? Presto, there we are at Matthew eleven twelve, and the reflection back to the days of John the Baptist. It seems to me that as little as six months, or maybe as many as a couple of years at most, pass from Jesus' baptism to this statement. Of course, it's, you know, the implied chronology, she means. To me, it seems that this reminiscing back that happens in Matthew eleven twelve is along the same lines as the introduction to the baptism in Matthew 3, 1, which begins, uh, In those days John the Baptist came, etc. The reflection back to John's era, for example, 20 to 30 A.D. or whatever, is from the author of Matthew's era, about uh, uh, 90 A.D. or whatever. Do you think 
the author of Matthew put an anachronism into Jesus' mouth with that similar phrase in Matthew eleven twelve that uh, from the days of John the Baptist was also more from that later era of the late first century to which readers could relate, as opposed to the more realistic vibe one would get from ever since last year when John the Baptist was preaching. Uh, let's see. Yeah, I I think uh, you're right about this. Uh, Robert Eisler mentioned this in The Messiah, Jesus, and John the Baptist, and he thinks that uh, this is a fragment uh, that... Uh, presupposes that John the Baptist was a substantially earlier character, and he says that's just the way it reads in the Slavonic Josephus, uh, where John is not named, but he is described, and it's pretty obvious that that John is is, uh, supposed to be the character. And uh, in the movie version of Hugh Schoenfield's The Passover Plot, it's interesting uh, that, and, and he was sympathetic to Eisler's case, Jesus and John the Baptist are together at one point, and John is much older than Jesus. And I, I suspect he got that from Eisler. Now, that doesn't fit the Lucan thing, where he'd be like only six months older than Jesus, right? So I sort of think he's uh, going the Eisler route there. And uh, so I, it does seem to me that, yeah, we, we have a uh, another instance of the Jesus chronology varying uh, in the early days, implying that the chronology we're reading is artificial. That's just one of those loose ends indicating that once it was different. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Uh, I have a question about the translation of Mark 6 4. It's usually translated as something like the King James Version, but Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. That means that Jesus is modestly saying that he has been honored elsewhere, in contrast to his reception at home. But when I look at Strong's Greek, the Greek words of Mark 6.4, it seems to me that the saying could also mean a prophet is not dishonored except in his own country, among his own kin, and his own house. Uh, in this rendering, Jesus is emphasizing the dishonor he receives at home. This does not imply that he was honored elsewhere. Indeed, I see several Bibles that use this translation. I, which one is correct? What saith the geek? Well, I uh, think that uh, you're right, that it does mean, well, I see, you know, I'm not making a big hit here. It's a tough crowd. But then again, it doesn't really bother me. That always happens. That's the rule, right? The everywhere else the prophet is uh, is uh, honored, but uh, when he gets home, uh, nothing doing. And uh, you'd have to ask, why is that? Uh, and uh, skeptics have said, and there's certainly a point to this, that's because the people there know him better and they cannot take it seriously, uh, implying that the so-called prophet is a fake and they're in a position to know it. 
this is why uh, in in elections, I remember uh, when uh, Dukakis was running against uh, Bush, the elder, and he he talked about uh, how he was going to do all these great things. But a Republican said, "Look, look at the state he's from. Look at Massachusetts. It's a mess." Uh, the rest of you can say how great he is, but uh, the folks at home know <laughs> you just you know that's nonsense. Uh, so uh, that that could be. I don't think that's Mark's point, but <laughs> you do have to wonder about that. And uh, the the same thing comes from uh, come, okay, the same issue comes up with Saul that he's taken over by the spirit of God and starts to prophesy and the people at home say what is is this guy a prophet too now uh, it's they just can't imagine it they it just seems to be a put on the the very much larger question here is the what they call the scandal of particularity People believe, oh, I, I guess a prophet could appear somewhere, and uh, we ought to know what he says. That sounds good. But if you say, oh, yeah, the prophet has appeared, and, and you know him. He's so-and-so. Uh, you, you probably went to school. and What? Uh, you just can't believe that a particular guy you know could be that big a deal. And I, so I, I sort of think that's what's going on. People are inclined to believe it more likely in the abstract, uh, not not somebody they know. Uh, who knows? But I think you're right. That probably is the, the point of it. Um, yeah, typically uh, the hometown crowd uh, is the toughest one to to please. Um, you know, I think I made a mistake here again. It's kind of irrelevant. Uh, it's what's asked, not who says it, but, uh, I'm sorry. I think, uh, Danila's question was simply the translation of Mark 6, 4, you know, prophet dishonored in his own country. I think perhaps the uh, business about when John lived, was um, was uh, was from uh, our buddy Luther, not Martin Luther. Right, sorry about that, but you know it's it's all one big think tank of brilliance here. So um, this from Casey in Louisiana, or as I used to say, as a Mississippian, Louisiana. Um, I just came across this intriguing quote from the Catholic apologist Peter Kraft. It's spelled K-R-E-E-F-T, but he pronounces it Kraft. On why he decided against writing a novel featuring Jesus. Quote, you can't write fiction about Jesus. The figure of the Gospels makes every attempt at imaginative fiction look silly. All the Jesus novels are stupid. Well, maybe somebody else is stupid. Uh, I think I think this expresses a profound truth about the Jesus of the Gospels. The Gospels are dramatic presentations like a film that moves from scene to scene, but in doing so cuts out the mundane details, the inclusion of which would spoil all dramatic effect. 
novels often do the same, but no art form has attended to and illustrated the realities of life and genuine human psychology the way the novel has. So much so that we criticize the novel that presents these unrealistically. This character was not believable. Uh, this event did not follow from what came before, etc. How fascinating that Kraft sees the Jesus figure presented in the Gospels as impervious to being translated into another writing medium. I know the immunity of Jesus to being captured in a literary description will, for some, speak to the inanity of the gospel character being matched with a historical figure, while for Christians it may just mean he really was that exceptional. Compare William Lane Craig's statement that it was the way Jesus spoke with authority in the gospels that led to his conversion. Wow. That is pretty existentialist. I'm fascinated by how it really is as if Jesus retreats to a heavenly dressing room when he's not needed on the stage of the Gospels so that he never ends up tainted by the banality of daily life. My guess is he's back in his office at the Daily Planet. Uh, how interesting that the only work that I think you believe succeeds in presenting a really hostile, I'm sorry, I'm not reading right, a really holistic and plausible picture of the psychology of someone in Jesus' situation, the last temptation of Christ, does so at the cost of the orthodox understanding of Jesus. Every grand event of the Gospels, the baptism, the transfiguration, the multiplication of the loaves, the denouncing of Peter as Satan, and so on, would all have been followed 10 or 20 or 30 minutes later with an inevitable, well, dinner then! Uh, this unacceptable mixing of the sacred and the profane is excluded from the Gospels, even though it is implied by the hypothesis that they are historical documents. Do you have any thoughts on this phenomenon? I know you have imbibed much Christian fiction over the years, but I do not know how you found Jesus to be presented therein. Thank you kindly. Well, mighty Casey, uh, one quibble there. I think that uh, the last temptation of Christ is the most orthodox um, movie Christologically. Same thing with the book, because it takes seriously, as nobody else does, that if Jesus is truly a human being and is truly God— uh, he couldn't easily accept his divinity. The whole liar, lord, or lunatic argument is predicated on the idea that a normal human mind could not sanely believe in its own godhood. If you believed it, uh, you would have to be insane. Uh, not just wrong, right? Not just in error, but crazy, as C.S. Lewis said, on the level with a man who thinks he's a poached egg, right? Well, that's uh, to say that Jesus, however, would escape that. Uh, that is I think, implicitly, the Apollinarian heresy. 
that Jesus really wasn't completely human. Uh, there's this hollowed out place where the Logos is plugged in instead. Uh, so what uh, Kazantzakis and Paul Schrader, the movie writer, have done is to say, okay, he was a real human being and he was really God. Uh, and how would that feel? And so he, he has Jesus battling with the idea, fearing that he's insane and, and that he's possessed. Uh, he says, the devil is in me. Uh, you want to know who my God is? My God is fear and so on and so on. And, and he's, uh, he's, uh, flagellating himself. He, uh, is putting on a belt with nails facing in. Uh, he's trying to, to exorcise this voice that tells him he's God. Uh, but eventually he, he comes to understand it. And uh, at the cleansing of the temple, he says, uh, and when I'm saying, I am saying God. Uh, it's uh, it's the only attempt I know of to uh, portray that, which is why this this movie, this novel, is theologically important. It shows that maybe it's not so stupid uh, to to picture a divine incarnation in that way. But I think the gospel story is novelistic. The whole climax to which it moves uh, is um, the crucifixion, the darkness before the dawn, and the final victory uh, where he rises from the dead. And the plot develops with signals to the reader as to what's going to happen, signals that just go right over the heads of the characters in the scene uh, because it's written for the reader, not them. And you're right, there's no mundane biography of Jesus, no account of mundane deeds. Now, of course, you could say even if Jesus were Superman, he wouldn't be leaping tall buildings in a single bound every day, right? Uh, and did he... Um, miraculously multiply food at every meal? Well, of course not. It says the women from Galilee provided for him uh, and so forth. But you do have to wonder, well, one a good cameo of this is uh, when Jesus multiplies the loaves and fish the first time. The so you give him something to eat. What are you, crazy? We, we don't have it. I got a can of tuna over here. Uh, that's going to feed all these people. Yeah, go ahead. See what happens. And there's enough food. Well, uh, everybody's pretty astonished. Not long after, they're in the identical situation with a hungry crowd, and they say, Master, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? And uh, he says, uh, you feed them. What? How can we feed Hey, stupid, don't you remember uh, what happened shortly before in exactly the same situation? Well, of course, it's not the real world. They couldn't have been that miraculously obtuse. Uh, could Mary and Joseph have had these, and each one of them has an angelic annunciation telling them that their kid is going to be the Messiah, and then some years later they think Jesus is crazy and they're going to take him home? That seems highly implausible in a narrative way. 
uh, the disciples know that uh, Judas is going to betray Jesus and they don't make a move to stop him? There's just all sorts of stuff in there. Pontius Pilate wants to get Jesus off the hook. We know who Pilate was. That never would have happened. Herod. uh, Pilate uh, fobs Jesus' case off on Herod. I'll leave it up to him. Herod uh, acquits him and sends him back to Pilate. Why? Uh, And then why does Pilate render his own judgment. It just doesn't make sense. So it's it's fiction that uh, reveals itself by not even really trying to to sound real, because Jesus is, is a superhero, a demigod. And uh, this issue comes up in uh, a great uh, book by uh, Martin Kaler, K-A with an umlaut, H-L-E-R, called uh, the so-called historical Jesus and the historic biblical Christ. I think that's the title. It's kind of a long one. And he objected to the, this is 19th century work, he objected to those uh, liberal theological historians who tried to explain Jesus' personality, which they thought was really the big deal about him, with uh, psychological studies and and all of that to make him an example to follow or something. And uh, he said, this is never going to work. The way Jesus is portrayed in the Gospels he does what he does. He says what he says because he's God incarnate, you know, or some such. Uh, to, to try to whittle that down to an understandable human psyche, you're just missing Jesus. You're you're, uh, you're coming up. You're whittling him down to some character on your level, but that is not the Jesus of the Gospels. Darn good point. And now George Ladd and others said, ah, Kaler was saying that the the uh, Jesus of the Gospels is the real historical Jesus. It's not that clear what Kaler was saying on that score. Bultmann and others took him to mean something very different, that the Christ of faith was bigger than the Jesus of history and couldn't be uh, reduced to him. But uh, that's kind of what's going on there, too. We would say, well, this is a fictional character. Can you psychoanalyze Superman? Uh, no, because if you could, he wouldn't be Superman. Uh, well, let's see. Well, i got to go get the car fixed, so I guess I'll leave it there today. And uh, I'll uh, try to be with you again tomorrow for another exciting episode of The Bible Geek. So I'll see you then.